This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? How do we present football to the audience of the future? I don't think that most players understand the power that they have. Michael Barr. The future of IndyCar racing is looking bright. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. Evan Novi williams The team value has essentially quadrupled. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Atlanta Braves President Derek Schiller. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. I'm Evan Novi williams And I'm Scott Soshnick. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we speak with Demora Smith, Executive Director of the NFL Players Association. There will be plenty to discuss with him, including negotiations for the next collective bargaining agreement, the skyrocketing valuations for franchises, and the power of players in the NFL. That is coming up. But first, let's look at some of our top stories of the week, beginning with the Los Angeles Dodgers completing the sale of a minority stake in the team. But you know, this is a fun one with the Dodgers because... We don't know who the buyer is. We don't know how much the buyer's paid. We don't know the stake. But what I can tell you for sure is that the Dodgers, who have been looking for an investment, have closed a deal to sell a limited partnership to what we understand are two folks. We don't know who they are, but knowing the Dodgers, I'm very interested to see when it comes out what sort of strategic partnership these folks will bring. The majority stake and, and the control stays with Mark Walter and, and Todd Bowley, the, the Guggenheim partners who bought this for such a huge valuation. Seems like a couple years billion. ago, yeah, but it was really like, like number, almost right? a decade yeah. ago. Um, but, you know, one of the most, probably the number two most valuable team in behind baseball the behind the Yankees. Yeah. Um, we think in a valuation somewhere in the mid three billion. Do you think that's kind of roughly where that where this shakes out? Boy, you know, a while back I had been told that they were telling investors the valuation was two five. But, of course, that was a year plus ago. I mean, this has been going on for a while. I know they've toyed with some South Korean investors. Um, If you're looking forward, you'd have to guess that, yeah, the valuation only went up. And and just so listeners know, the valuation often for a minority stake sale is lower than the valuation would be if they sold this thing in its entirety for reasons that we've discussed many times. Why don't you discuss it one more time? You know, these guys are not getting control of the team. You know, they're not getting really any say. They might get a board seat depending on how big their stake is. But, you know, in in a lot of ways, this is a kind of a glorified season ticket and something to put on a business card in a lot of ways. Well, this is just an investment to these people because, like you said, I mean, you know, I can't make any decisions. Decisions. I get to go and see the game, maybe, depending on how much I pony up. So hopefully they're trying to sell their stake once they do sell it one day to make more money. Yes. Our next topic. Let's talk about a decision this week from the Santa Clara Stadium Authority to no longer allow the San Francisco 49ers to manage Levi Stadium for events outside of the NFL. Right. Normally we get a story like this and I'm like, okay, let me let me digest exactly what happened here. I say, Evan, tell the world about it. But I'm, I'm Take a shot here. Near as I can tell, Mr. Novi Williams, that the Santa Clara Stadium Authority, they are taking the power or trying to take the power away from the team to manage the stadium, and this is important, for non-NFL events. Yep. And it seems, in reading the story from the local paper, and I had not been aware of all this negativity, but it seems as if there have been a slew of disagreements between the 49ers and the stadium authority at one point, the team had to pay more money for rent when they had been asking for less. There's a whole—how much are they are asking for? $643,000 in March. The 49ers were issued a breach of contract by the city over $643,000 bill for floor cleaning. That's a lot of cleaning. That's a lot of floor. But 
It just seems that the relationship is beyond sour. Yeah, this is pretty ugly. So the Santa Clara Stadium Authority, which represents the city, owns the stadium. You know, they're accusing the 49ers of misrepresenting business, failure to pay prevailing wages, conflict of interest, failure to maximize profit. Just to give you a sense of the numbers here, you know, the the stadium is projecting a $2.3 million loss this year. Um, the the revenue from non-football events is $18,000 this year, down from $5 million yeah. last year. Um, and why that matters is that the way that the the, st- the city gets paid is is performance based rent, right? So so the money that they get from non football events, be they concerts or corporate events, uh, that's the way the city gets paid. They were making two point five million dollars every year in that rent since the stadium opened in two thousand fourteen. Last year zero dollars. This year they're projecting zero dollars. So I think that's the main reason here why why the city and and, and Mayor Lisa Gilmore is going so heavily after the 49ers. And finally, we turn to basketball with the NBA proposing a new $10 million fine for tampering. Yeah, this has sort of become, I think, a little too rampant for Adam Silver and some of the owners where you have wink-wink side deals and players are signing right away when they weren't supposed to have any contact with teams and if you're going to have the rule, you have to be willing to enforce it, right? They don't do it for traveling. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> sure they do. I haven't looked at the last two-minute reports, the what are they, L2M <laughs> reports lately to see if any got them wrong. But if you're going to have the rule, especially this, if you're going to have the perception, again, a lot of this stuff that we've talked about comes down to the time that this is all happening, that... The perception of everything the league does has to be on the up and up to fans because you're asking fans and and bookmakers to trust league data. It's why we talked about the NBA for the first time in a long time is going to make sure that if a player says he's seven feet tall, he can't be six, eight, because you have to have confidence in the data of the NBA and their ability to get things right. That's why they're. I think they're. They're really clamping down on. Yeah, this. and one thing to note: the rules, all these fines, they were set in 1996. Yeah. Right. So it's been it's been a while since they updated these things. Team valuations are much higher. League revenue is much higher. Contracts are so, higher. So yeah, doubling the fine from five million to ten million uh, makes sense. But in my opinion, if you really care about this, the wallet is not the way to enforce this. Right. Take draft picks away. There's another way to enforce. That's what this they did rule. to the Timberwolves when, with the Joe Smith contract. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you really care about enforcing this rule, uh, adding double. Doubling the fine is not the way to uh, to make sure teams never do it again. Now let's get to this week's interview with Demora Smith, executive director of the NFL Players Association, a role he has held since 2009. And we have a lot to talk about, including negotiations for the next collective bargaining agreement, the skyrocketing valuations for franchises, and the power of players in the NFL. D, you are currently on the Fame Training Camp Tour, going around to see all the players. You're about a third of the way through. Is there any unifying message you're hearing from the players? Well, more than anything else, it's we're telling our guys that it's it's time to uh, stay ready for a potential work stoppage. Uh, our collective bargaining agreement is up in 2021. Uh, there, it's no secret that we've been in collective bargaining meetings with the league, but um, there's no excuse for players not to be ready. So our agents have done a great job of already talking to our players about preparing for a work stoppage, saving their money, uh, coming up with alternative insurance plans. Um, and while we hope that we get something done, you certainly have to prepare if you don't. Give me a reason why I'm wrong with this statement. As a guy who has covered labor stoppages for almost two and a half decades now, that the players really have almost no advantage over the owners because they have so much money 
that they really do have the ability to just wait it out as long as they want? Well, you do. I mean, it's, you know, like everything in life, it's not binary. Um, You know, when we looked at where we were last year, the owners still have, you know, certain interest when it comes to covering the the debt or servicing the debt on their stadiums. You're looking at uh, at least a television landscape now where we all know that television uh, for all sports is changing. And while we've seen an uptick in uh, viewership in the NFL in the last year that came after nearly two, maybe three years of a downturn. So, uh, you know, look, I mean, if you're, you know, setting up the, the, the Stratego game, <laughs> um, you know, certainly you sunk you my battleship. You know, well, well to do owners. Um, but on the other side of the table, um, you have a group of, of people who, um, I hate to use this word, but they are the product. They are the thing that, that people come to see. Um, I think that both sides realize um, all of the downsides from a work stoppage, but sometimes that, that doesn't mean that one doesn't have to occur. I will say, as someone who has covered a bunch of these, there have been many times where you could see a bunch of teams not doing as well as many in the league. You can't right. say that for the NFL. These things print money. Can you make an, any argument whatsoever for an NFL owner wanting to shut down the league? Well, you know, they made an argument last time that they wanted to shut down because, you know, they, they wanted us to play 18 games. Um, and the things on the table there were, were our pensions um, and um, issues of health care. And they did shut it down. Um, we were able to keep both. Um, I think that, you know, you look at both sides. Are there things that we like about the collective bargaining agreement? Yes. Are there things that we don't like? Um, yes. Does it mean that reasonable minds shouldn't figure out uh, a way to make up a compromise? But, Scott, you know, these people probably better than I do. Um, there's times when irrationality sets in, or there's times when there's just some things that um, players won't do. And and 18 games last time was something that the players weren't going to do. D, every year, as you know, the Green Bay Packers release their financials. As a journalist, it's kind of the really the only chance I get to look at the financials of of, of NFL teams. Uh, we know the top line, you know, fifteen roughly fifteen billion dollar revenue number. How much insight do you guys get into the health of uh, of NFL teams? Not a lot. I mean, we we get to audit revenue. Um, we don't get to audit expenses. So. Um, you know, I don't take a whole lot from the Packers situation because uh, you can make the argument that they are unlike um, any other team in the National Football League. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think that there is a whole lot to glean uh, from just one team when you try to extrapolate that to to the other 31. Um, you know, look, I mean, the reality of it is, um, and I think, you know, this is getting a little bit into the weeds. The league's decision um, in the last CBA to not have revenue sharing as a part of the collective bargaining agreement certainly changed the landscape between um, the teams. And teams in some markets are making considerably less uh, than others. And, Buffalo? and you can get to that <laughs> yeah. number. 
uh, by just looking at their local revenue and knowing a little bit about how the TV money is um, shared between them. But does that create an interest between small market teams and large market teams? Yes. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Demora Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA, and as a geezer reporter who was based in Detroit, <laughs> uh, and the irony of what's happening now is that the UAW is on strike against General yep. Motors. Two things that the NFLPA and the UAW have in common, and I've always learned, they never negotiate through the media. And right. that needs to be explained to people. It's like, well, why are we getting any more news out of this? Can you explain to people this is why you don't do it? Well, you know, well, I, I never say never. Um, you know, sometimes if you think that there is a window uh, to get something done, I'm certainly a fan of sitting, you know, having our players sit directly across from the league's board of directors and, and having a conversation and, and keeping that conversation in the room. Um, there are times, however, when you think that negotiations aren't going well, and it's important to use every piece of leverage that you have. Um, I think um, the lockout or whatever led up to the lockout um, last time, we knew that they were going to lock us out. We knew that they wanted us uh, to play 18 games. We knew that they had leveraged the TV networks to give them $4 billion to force the players uh, to play 18 games. At that point, I think you can make a pretty good argument um, that you should uh, take your case to the public because um, you you want the public to understand exactly what's happening. Dee, can you explain um, that, that leverage, that, that $4 billion leverage? For the 18 last time the, yeah, the, the last time the league made no secret – of going to the TV networks and getting all of the networks to front them $4 billion even when the games weren't going to be played. To be clear, the money has to be repaid, but even though there's no broadcasts. uh, Actually, it doesn't have to be repaid, but that's that's neither here nor there. But um, uh, they secured that from the networks. We filed a, a case in federal court. A federal judge ruled um, for the players, and the league suddenly found themselves without that $4 billion. Is there any reason to believe in these visits to your players that they're all saying, you know, this time around, 18 games sounds good. Yeah, we want more football? Not really. Yeah, didn't think so. No. No, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the brutality of this game has played out. Um, unfortunately, a lot in the in the last um, couple of weeks. I think um, that we always take a look at the. We don't look at at games in isolation. We look at the overall work that our players uh, do from April until February. And um, you know, like any other um, you know change, we will continue to push for that work to decrease. And their exposure to in- injury decrease as well. D, one of the big big challenges outside of just negotiating these deals when you're putting together a CBA is kind of trying to anticipate what might not, what isn't a big deal now, but might be a big deal before this thing right. expires. Right. And, and we talk a lot on this show about player data and privacy. 
Um, yep. something that was probably not huge on the radar back in 2011. I would imagine it's a bigger deal now. Can you give us a sense of, of the conversations that you're hearing from players? How big of an issue is, you know, especially as sports gambling comes on board and everybody wants to monetize data in that regard as well, kind of how the, the privacy around, you know, analytics and, you know, the, right. your heart rate, et cetera, how that data conversation happens. Yeah, well, we actually – anticipated it in the 2011 deal. So there's a clause in the CBA that restricts the use of uh, player data in most cases um, unless there is the direct permission of, um, of the NFLPA. So we put that as a placeholder back in 2011, not you know, not really knowing, you know, the way it was going to develop over the future, but certainly understanding the growing use of player data. Um, I think that that will continue to be a big issue. It'll be a big issue in bargaining. Um, You know, we always, uh, when you're talking about player data, sometimes I think um, people talk past each other uh, when it comes to that issue. You know, there's biometric data, um, that that is certainly you know quote unquote interesting. There's tracking data uh, that's interesting. There's sleep sensor data uh, that's um, that's interesting. But all of that um, are distinct buckets of player information. So you know we we believe in the privacy of our players. We've had to file grievances in the past. You know with the league that we've won. Um, in order to uh, ensure that we secure players' privacy. Um, but um, that's something that we'll continue to do in bargaining, and if not, we'll do with grievances. So looking forward, what's the next What's the next thing that, that might get a placeholder in this new deal that, that you're really <laughs> looking ahead towards in, in maybe 10 or 15 years from now? And that's why we don't bargain. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Great question. I I was just getting ready to answer that. Why am I here? It comes. (laughs) You mean the most important thing that I would want to not want Roger to know? Yeah, let me think about that. (laughs) Never hurts to ask. (laughs) We're talking to DeMora Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA. And my apologies to Mr. Goodell when I asked the question this way, but in the last negotiations uh critics said that uh, roger goodell has was made judge jury and executioner uh when it came down to decisions with players uh is that going to be an issue during these uh talks right now well you know i think you know i've heard that uh, more than once um I, I think that when you look at the history of all of our collective bargaining agreements um the 11 agreement was the only agreement um, that we've had that l- actually limited his authority. Um, the, the 11 agreement was the first agreement that uh, gave us neutral arbitration in every other instance except for commissioner discipline. And his power um, for commissioner discipline uh, has existed since well, you could say since 1993 when we had our first um, collective bargaining agreement, but you know the overall power of commissioners and the way that's been interpreted dates back to uh, the Chicago Black Sox, right? So um, you know, commissioner discipline is always a big issue um, when it comes to our players. Um, it doesn't rank in the top ten. Um, so what I think that we will probably do in this uh, collective bargaining agreement is, is you will see something um, different. But sometimes I think 
that certain issues play out uh, in a public way um, and people come to conclusions about what players think uh, are important by how it plays out publicly. Um, it doesn't mean that we aren't going to change it, but um, we would never, quote-unquote, buy a solution for commissioner discipline. Um, we wouldn't give them percentage points for commissioner discipline. We wouldn't give them stadium credits for a change in commissioner discipline because um, it wouldn't make any sense to trade an economic issue like that for a non-economic issue like commissioner discipline. D, what is the attention being paid to the valuations of these franchises by your players? Surely when they see the Dallas Cowboys are worth five-plus billion, and I think you and I would probably agree, should Gerald ever decide to sell the team, it would be north of that. But it is yeah. but it is owner money. It's outside of shared money. What's the retort to, one, what every owner always says, I don't get that money unless I sell and I'm never selling, and two, it's my risk. What's the player retort to that? Well, I'm, I think the player retort to that should be, and I know this might come as a shock, but somewhat indifference. Um, it's, a, it's an asset um, that, that is owned by, um, in most cases, now n- not even a single owner. Um, so, you know, we've kind of gotten away from using the word owner because more of these teams are comprised of, of multiple shareholders, of which, you know, the person that you see has the majority um, interest. Um, the way that I look at the valuation of this is um, n- not so much um, in isolation, but if you look at the market of how many sports teams come up for sale in a given period of time and who is in a position to purchase that asset or what groups of people are in the position to purchase um, the asset, um, you can make all sorts of judgments about the valuation. But I'm not sure that any of that um, is more important than the, the, the pivotal question of um, – what is your return for the amount of work that you're doing? And whether you are a football player or someone who works um, um, for the UAW, you want a fair return for the work that you have. You know, if your compensation structure was one where you had, you know, interest or, or um, you were able to take shares or, uh, or warrants, that would be another conversation. But, um, you know, the, the way teams are valued, I, I think you can have a, a very robust conversation that, um, that any, any, any sports franchise is, is worth probably two or three times what the listed value is. Um, and that's because we have always, in, in this country at least, uh, there's been an unwritten rule about who these teams are actually available to be sold to, right? And who is that? Well, you know, we have had all sorts of limitations um, on on who can – purchase the teams, limitations on whether certain owners needed to own certain percentages. Um, I think I read recently that the NBA um, has taken steps on, on team ownership within the last month. So all of those things affect valuation. So 
Um, I think the the conversation about valuation is an interesting one. Um, I just don't think that it is a pivotal one when it comes to um, negotiating collective bargaining agreements, because if you're a worker and you're not entitled to warrants or to purchase stock in the corporation in which you own, the pivotal question becomes, what's your return uh, for the work that you're providing. Dee, let's let's move away from from labor talk for a second. You know, a couple weeks into the NFL season, we've had a number of of big name players essentially publicly demanding trades. Minka Fitzpatrick, Jalen Ramsey, you know, and the Antonio Brown saga unfolded as it did. I saw Steve Young on TV Monday Night Football saying that you know the NFL is becoming the NBA. I think he meant it in a bad way. I kind of interpreted it in a in a good way. Do, do you see a shift at all in maybe the power that players have in terms of kind of determining their own fate more so than maybe there was a couple of years ago? I, I, you know, I'm not going to quibble between, you know, somebody about whether it's net good, net bad, because I really don't know what it means, um, you know, making sort of a moral judgment about something like that. You know, the way I've always looked at this job is, is, is in two frames. Um, we're a union. And as the, as a union, what would you want for uh, your workers, you would want them to have more control, you know, over just like you said, their destiny. Um, I, I think that you know whether you want to, you know, use it in a or sort of cast it in a pejorative way or not is is up to your own, you know, your own opinion. And and certainly people are entitled to their own opinion. But you know, I, do I do do I think that that players have exercised more of their power in the last few years? Yes. Um, do I think um, that 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 feeling of having more control over their destiny um, is something that the players needed um, to not only realize and exercise? Absolutely, and and you saw it um, not only with the the way in which players have, t- have taken certain stands about their own contracts, but um, going back to even the issues we went through um, with the anthem. Um, you saw players, um, you know, really for the first time um, taking a stand. And I think that's great and certainly uh, what any union leader would want to see. Let's close on this, D. I, I think I know the answer, but let me ask anyway, since you just mentioned the <laughs> anthem. Do you leave open any possibility that Colin Kaepernick may play in the NFL again? Uh, that he would play again in the National Football League? Sure. And, and I think he should be. Okay, so why isn't he? Why doesn't he have a job? Well, I mean, I've made no bones about it in in the past. I think that that Colin was um, um, had the ability, had the talent um, to be playing in the National Football League, and I I made uh, I've said it before that I that it was my belief that the owners made a decision that he wouldn't play in the National Football League. So, what gives you hope that he may play again? Well, there's there's always hope, and, and I think that um, you know if you. I don't want to sound too preachy, but you asked the question. If you simply want to continue to believe that bad things are going to happen, then I think that's a tough way to live your life. Um, So do I always hope that um, somebody who wants to play this game, um, somebody who should be playing this game, um, should I hope that they are in this game? Absolutely. Right. Tamara Smith, Executive Director of the NFLPA. Thanks so much, D. Always a pleasure, guys. Demora Smith, uh, he can school us about anything.
And uh, I love it when uh, he talked about the union. And now it's like the UAW, as I mentioned earlier. I covered a lot of those auto negotiations, and the union never negotiate in You've front been of to the Detroit? media. Uh, believe it or not, yes. <laughs> and and it's right now we are far away from a deadline for a CBA. But I wonder what's going to happen when we get close to it. Uh, will things change? Will people clam up? Or will everybody uh, start talking? What's going to happen? You're big on the media negotiation part, huh? Yeah. Uh, all right. For me, and Evan, am I stepping on you if you want to talk about player empowerment? No, go for it. All right. Uh, I like hearing D talk about sort of the players flexing a little bit, um, that they have certain rights in the collective bargaining agreement, and players and owners often do but heads. However, you you do have players who are kind of dictating now. You've seen it in the NBA more than the NFL, mm-hmm. but you're starting to see some NFL players saying, I would rather go here or there and willing to sit out and lose some money and pick their destination. And I know one of your fantasy guys, you know, you think Le'Veon Bell is... Happy that he gave up, what, 30 million bucks to steer his way to the New York Jets? You think now he's thinking, how can I get maybe out of I, here? Maybe I should have just, yeah, how, how can I flex that my way out of New York? Right? Exactly. Whoops. I also think we, we got a kind of a nice little glimpse into the way that D, and, and I guess by virtue of that, that the players' union as a whole thinks about a lot of these negotiations. You know, we, we spend so much time in the media talking about Roger Goodell and, and, and the way that he disciplines players and, and whether that should be taken away from him in the next CBA. Certainly didn't seem like that was necessarily high on the list uh, for D right now. And he said, and I was kind of surprised to hear him say it, you know, they're not interested in trading money things for non-money things, right? And, and on its face, player discipline is a non-money thing, and he's not interested in giving up more money for that, right? And, and that comes after, you know, Eight years ago, when they negotiated this most recent one, there was some criticism for the NFLPA. People felt like they focused on the money so much that they lost sight of a lot of the other things. Very interested to hear him say that, you know, they're not interested in trading anything money for non-money. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since the kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Number of the week. We're going to play a game. This is the first time we've ever done this. Do we have theme music? <laughs> yeah, we need some match game music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you two yeah, numbers. I don't know match game. You know match game? I don't know match game. Oh, oh it, it's back on. It's a reap anyway. Okay. You got to see Gene Rayburn's microphone in match game. Greatest thing ever. Same thing to Bob Barker. He carries it down here. Yeah. Go look it up. We're going to play a game. It's kind of like the price is right. I'm going to give you two numbers. 22.5 and 21. Those are the spreads for these two games I'm going to mention. Patriots-Jets, yeah. Patriots-Jets yeah. and Cowboys. Or the Cowboys uh, hosting the Dolphins. So you want higher or lower, like card sharks? I, I want you. That's the right game to be playing right now. That's true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, I want you to match up either the 21 and the 22.5. Which one has those spreads? That seems like the same number to me. They're, they're like a point away. <laughs> they're going to win by a lot. Evan and I are looking at each other going, no. they're the same. What's the difference between 21 and 22.5? That is they're ridiculous. They're going to win by three scores. That is, yeah. <laughs> yes, they're both ridiculous. They're both very large spreads. All right, I'll, then I'll put it this way. Kind of like Thanksgiving right. at the bar house. I'm going to... <laughs> I'm gonna play. We'll play. We'll play. Right. I'm gonna guess that the 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 Patriots Jets line is the bigger of the two. 
That I, don't, is, I don't see how it isn't. I agree with that. Ben. That is uh, correct. Okay. What did we win? That uh, well, you win my gratitude. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Next week we're not playing. Yeah. <laughs> we got to increase the purse here, guys. I'm bringing candy bars, man. Jets and Patriots, 22.5. That's what the Patriots are giving up. Dolphins and Cowboys, the Cowboys are giving up 21. That's amazing to me. But so. poor Eli Manning, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Never forget. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna let that go, are you, man? Big Bar uh, Sports. Uh, you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr, and I feel for you, Eli, on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams, and I'm Scott Sashnik. You can follow me on Twitter at Sashnik. Thank you very much for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with Evan. We got Pete Vlasilka. Pete Vlasilka. Yeah. yeah, heading into the Overwatch League uh, grand finale. That's esports, uh, Michael. Oh, thank you. Vince. Bring your son in. Yeah, yeah, he'll know exactly what to do. Yeah. I'm still in Pong. You're listening to Bloomberg Business with Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Mm-hmm.